Wow, a lot has changed since the last coronavirus podcast we recorded a month ago. In fact, a lot has changed about the way we live our lives in response to the spread of this virus, with no clear understanding of when or if things will go back to normal. This is an unprecedented moment in all of our lifetimes, with the spread of COVID-19 recognized as a global pandemic the likes of which the world has not seen in at least a century. As of this recording, there are over 785,000 confirmed cases and 37,000 deaths from COVID-19 globally, but this number will be higher by the time you hear this. Over 160,000 cases and 3,000 deaths are in the United States making the U.S. the country with the most confirmed coronavirus cases. The U.S. is now ground zero for the COVID-19 crisis. With many here worried, we are heading to a situation close to what Italy has experienced. Drastic measures have been enacted in many states and cities, including stay-at-home orders, store and restaurant closures, and more, all on top of calls for social distancing at the national level. Hospitals and ICUs in densely populated cities such as New York, New Orleans, and where I live, Chicago, are being stretched to their limits and are in danger of running over capacity by early April. Even if the lockdown measures can slow transmission of the disease, we, as we hope they can, they have major implications for the economy of our nation and the world. One interesting byproduct of this pandemic is that it has thrust our field of epidemiology to the forefront of public discussion with terms such as flattening the curve now household words. I'm your host, Brian James, Associate Professor at Rush University Medical Center, and this is Epidemiology Counts from the Society for Epidemiologic Research, a podcast that gives you up-to-date information on the state of health research straight from researchers deeply involved in this work. Much of what we discussed in the first two coronavirus episodes is now public knowledge, but so many questions still remain. We hope to shed some light on the questions many of you may have about this pandemic in this scary time. And I'm so grateful to once again have access to our experts in infectious disease epidemiology, Justin Lessler from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and Michael Mina from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Thanks for joining us, guys. Thank you. Well, you both have gotten a ton of deserved attention for your expertise, and I've seen or heard each of you on CNN, NPR, and the like. And so we are so thankful that you've carved out time in your insane schedules to talk to us. It's now 10 p.m. my time central, and um, let's get started. I have a ton of questions for you guys, okay? All, All right. right. Looking forward to it. Sounds great. All right. So let's start off with the big one. Are we flattening the curve? Are these measures that we've enacted working in the United States? I, th- I think yes. I think that uh, even if we're not seeing the effects yet, uh, mm-hmm. in the areas where we have, uh, where we have seriously uh, enacted social distancing measures, mm-hmm. uh, transmission has, has slowed. And, and that's just because people are, are not seeing other people nearly as much. Um, and, uh, but I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that uh, that there is going to be a delay, in particular when we're looking at, at, at hospitalizations and ICU stays as the metrics to understand if we're flattening the curve, there's going to be at least a, a two or three or week delay before we actually see the, the benefits of the actions we're taking today. And why is it a two or three um, week um, delay? Like, so, I mean, I, go ahead. Yeah, so, so yeah, d- I mean, I'm absolutely, Michael's absolutely right. So, the, the two or three week delay comes from the fact that you get infected, 
-hmm. So, but that's a none, nobody observes that event, right? Mm -hmm. And then it's uh, five days or so on average before you actually develop symptoms, but right. those symptoms aren't necessarily gonna be severe enough to send you to the hospital right away. So it'd be a week or two before you get to the hospital uh, mm. or certainly before you get in the ICU. And then if you mm. progress to very severe disease and death, that can be another one to two weeks. So the, wow. the deaths and the ICU stays are lagging by somewhere between two weeks and a month behind Yikes. the actual infections. So mm. it's going to be uh, a challenge to keep up the social distancing measures when you don't see the impact mm -hmm. uh, of them right away. And Okay, well, so, but we're already seeing things change a little bit, even with that two to three week delay that you're talking about. I think, no, I, I, I don't know that we've actually been able to observe the uh, impacts okay. yet. I think what we're seeing is that, that society is changing and we can project mm -hmm. in the same way that epidemiologists could project two months ago that we would be here. And I don't think right. that that's an exaggeration to say that that this has been been seen as somewhat of an inevitable consequence. Right. Right. Um, but we can also project now that the, that things we we are not seeing today. The nice mm -hmm. thing about being an epidemiologist is it's sort of like a superpower. You can you can uh, make pretty good guesses of what's happening in the future. That's right. Yeah. Right. And, and so just and like the the distancing measures we're doing right. I think they're doing more than flattening the curve. I mean. A lot of places have gone, uh, we'll call it full Wuhan, uh, you know, that is, that's the level they went to uh, in Wuhan, China, that managed mm -hmm. to take a raging epidemic and slam it down into, um, you know, to nothing pretty fast. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, I don't know if we're quite exactly at the levels there were there everywhere, but a lot of places are moving there. In Maryland, where I am, we just mm -hmm. went full stay at home order today. Yeah. Uh, they've been at, like that in California since the 19th. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know what they're uh, doing up in Boston right now, Michael, but. Things are pretty quiet here. It's not complete full stay at home order at the moment, but certainly you, you drive around the city, you, you walk around to go, go out for a walk and there is uh, uh, nobody really moving around. Although there are a lot of people taking walks, which is, you know, for better or worse, I think. Right. Uh, we are so, seeing people get out. Yeah, I'll, I'll ask you about that in a little bit. <laughs> so, if we can't uh, get outside for a walk, we may go completely insane, right. right? Yeah. So as long as those are reducing infectious contacts by somewhere between like a half to two thirds, which if you look at how oh, much gosh. things have, have settled down, it should be driving down the epidemic, not just flattening mm -hmm. the curve, but driving down the curve. Right, like getting like, R not below one. Below one, right, mm. or R below one, yeah. So, okay. but the, the catch and the big question we have to be asking ourselves is what next? Because right. when we stop transmission, we stop accumulating immunity in the population. Mm -hmm. and, and in like models we run, and these, are, these aren't unique to our group, like every group who's run these models shows this, you do this uh, heavy duty social distancing for a while and you stop transmission or, or stop most transmission. And all that does is that pushes the peak out one, two, three months into the future. But, mm -hmm. you know, a longer, a longer time into the future than you do to social distancing, like you get extra time but it's just pushes out in the future. But the peak itself, if you go completely back to normal, yeah. is the same height. So the oh, question gosh. we have to be asking ourselves- so You're just moving the curve instead of flattening it. 
if you go back to normal. Like, so Oof. the question we have to be asking ourselves, and I'm interested in talking to Michael about some of the things mm -hmm. I have in mind that might be the way to do this, but what do we do after? We can't be thinking these, of these social distancing measures right. as the end of the game. They are an emergency measure we're doing in response to a crisis situation mm -hmm. to get things under control so our hospitals aren't overflowing. And, but they are, they are not the solution. So we have to use the time this buys us because people aren't going to tolerate this forever. But uh -huh. use this time to this buys us to figure out what is next and, yep. and hopefully come up with some creative ideas in that. Yeah, I really look at this time that we are in currently as uh, very much the, 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 the squandered time that we spent at the beginning of this epidemic since we started right. seeing it spread internationally. There was a, there was a couple of months at least that, that, that there was very little, uh, almost zero action, at least in this country. And so right now we kind of have bought ourselves that time back at the expense, of course, at the economy and, and, mm -hmm. some, and our social fabric. Uh, but we have to use it wisely right now. Yeah. Um, can, can I, Brian, I know you have questions, but do you mind yeah. if we, yeah. Please so, do. Let's so do I, I want to say, I want to say what I think is our best option for coming next. I mean, if we can get a good drug or a vaccine, mm -hmm. that's, that's obviously the best solution. But right. I think right now our but best that's about a year away at, at best case scenario, right? Best. The vaccine absolutely. is best case. Best. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Just best. want to get that out. Yeah. We could get lucky with with some existing drug, but mm -hmm. it's you know that would be, it would be getting lucky. Just to be right. clear. Mm -hmm. um, so I so my thought about what our our option is is essentially scale up testing, both serological and virologic a lot and then have sort of a two-prong approach where we are um going after where we're, we're trying to test people a lot so so if you have any concern you're inf infected there's a, a test available to you mm. and then doing whenever we get a positive there doing uh rapid response and a lot of contact tracing but along that so that we're stopping small we're keeping it to small flare-ups and stopping them and then at the same time, getting as much validated immunity out that's out there in the population as we can, knowing who is actually protected um, and can maybe, you know, pref give those people preference for certain high risk roles and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's the tool we have. I mean, given the tools we have, I feel like that's the path. But Michael knows a lot more about the testing and laboratory size and whether right. or not that's just a pipe dream, a fantasy that I'm just doing up <laughs> yeah. in the shower. Yeah or this is a realistic option. So yeah, I actually, I, I do want to ask you guys about the shortage in testing and where we're at with that, but I, I want to table that for now because that's, that's a whole nother conversation. Um, but, but just to go back to your point, Justin, that you know, if we buy ourselves time with these immediate measures, we may get to a point where we have enough tests to come maybe somewhere close to your idea of universal testing, but we're nowhere near that right now, right? Um, but, you know, I wanted to, before we move on to, to test where we're at testing, where we're at with a lot of other things, I wanted to ask, I think, you know, stay on this topic of what we're doing right now in the immediate, because a lot of people have been asking me to ask you guys, how long do we think these drastic measures have to last? And, you know, I, I want to, you know, I want to start by talking about this Imperial College report that came out that 
maybe frighten a lot of people, maybe hopefully frighten a lot of uh, politicians into action. But um, I don't know how much it, it's a scare tactic or versus reality. And it was saying that we may need to do some of these drastic measures for 18 months to really- That, uh, that was a complete misinterpretation of what- Okay, okay, all right, good. So <laughs> l let's not go into the 18 months number then, but l let me just ask you guys, like how long do we think, when I'm talking, I'm talking about the work from home, you know, stay at home, don't interact with people, six feet distance, et cetera. How long do we think this has to go on for? Well, like, like Justin said, this is, this is emergency measures right sure. now. These are not, um, these are not sustainable no. and they, they have to be balanced with the cost to the economy and the cost to, to society. Right. And that alone, that cost alone, we don't want to find ourselves in a place where we're throwing ourselves into a, another great depression right. um, no. in an effort and have the, have the effects of the, of, of the mitigated strategies end up being in the long term worse than the, than the actual infection itself in, in mm -hmm. the population. So I think what what we're trying to do right now is we're trying to get this just under control. And it's not it's not even about the individual level risk at this point. What it really is about is getting it under control for the sake of the healthcare system. And that still yes. remains sort of priority number one. Right. And that means that the moment we come down back off of this big peak and we start to see numbers go really low, Mm -hmm. Then we have to start thinking, and that will probably be, I, I think, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'd be interested to hear what Justin's perspective is, but I think that by, by the, um, you know, by mid-May, we're probably going to be in a very different spot. We're going to have crossed over the real hard part, which is essentially going to be mid-April, I mm -hmm. think, maybe pushing out to late April and across the country on average. But hopefully by mid to late May, we'll, we'll really be driving this thing down. And at that point, we have to really start thinking about how to get, in particular, younger people or the less susceptible in our population back into the workforce in some sort of controlled fashion. Mm -hmm. um, well, just, and, uh, so, yeah, to, to just say that, you know, those, those numbers that Michael gave are completely reasonable, I think, in terms of when we're going to have the local peak and when it's going to get driven back down. Mm -hmm. But in, in stuff that we've looked at, um, and I think this is pretty consistent with other people's work. You do that for say eight weeks. Like I, that's, I think a long, but you know, that's sort of a middle ground and how long shutdown happens. It's, it's long, but it's yeah, not it's very like, long. Yeah. It's not 16 months though. It's not even 16 right. months. It, it's I think, not 18 months. I mean, to my intuition, this is not me as an epidemiologist, to my intuition, that's sort of a, toward the upper limit of what could be tolerated exactly uh, right you, i mean you know and right but but what i just know i'm just using that scenario because it's one we've used in some work we've done mm -hmm. uh like you know for for various partners and that buys you 88 days if you go back okay. to normal after if you do stuff if you do mild mitigation or mm -hmm. some sort of testing strategy after it it, it buys you a lot longer but right. if you go completely back to normal it buys you 88 days Okay. Uh, so that's the, going to be the hard part in a way it's going to be realizing that, cause what's going to happen is eight weeks is going to happen. You know, then you're going to see nothing and you're going to see nothing for a while. And it's going to be like the time we squandered at the beginning of the epidemic and people are going to be like, it's no big deal. And then, and then go it back to sort of normal. Blows up to everybody. Yeah. Go back to normal. It blows up into everyone's faces. So that's why oh, we yeah. need to, we need to not squander that time. Right next again um but i Oof. think 
yeah, but I do think this April, April, May, that's exactly right, I think, uh, in terms of when, the, depending on the state, like states that acted early, that's what they're going to see, states yeah. that acted later, or some states I, I think haven't even acted at all yet. Yeah, I, eventually I want to talk to you guys about the, um, the difference across you know, geographic areas and, and <laughs> whether we need a more national approach. But um, regardless of that, you guys are saying that you both agree about two months. We need about two months of these measures. Yeah. And that, yeah. And that, that goes back to the first question, which is, um, is this, is it, is it working? Is fighting the curve working? Mm -hmm. and, and, the, and then we're going to see this continued exponential increase that mm -hmm. we're not going to really see the gains made for, for another few, two to three weeks. Mm -hmm. now maybe in a two weeks mm -hmm. and then we're going to start to see it flatten off and then it's just the the time it really takes to push it right to push it down to yeah. a place where people can safely start maneuvering yeah. around society without really causing you know new flare-ups right can i can i say something about that yeah. like i i think what we're doing now is a sign of flattening the curve failing right like we're now bringing the hammer like yeah. flatten yeah. the curve ha failed so we're bringing the hammer and and we didn't need to when we take the hammer, when we, we stop that, when we take our foot off the brakes, we need mm -hmm. to flatten the curve successfully next time, whether yeah. it be from, you know, whether it be using some technology, biomedical technologies to help us or just, you know, something social. Okay, that's interesting. So the flattening the curve idea was really about social distancing. So it was really about more mild measures, like, you know, just being cognizant, trying not to. But now you're saying we, we've moved beyond flattening the curve to squashing the curve with, the, with right. a hammer. And um, we may have been able to go ahead. Yeah, to the technical terms, like flattening curve was trying to bring R as close to one as we could and keeping mm -hmm. it as close to one as we could while we built up the herd immunity that it was naturally there. Okay. Right. So just a little bit above one. So you have just sort of the minimum amount of transmission, mm -hmm. you know, that's the ideal there, the, you know, the, the, uh, but still build up, build up that herd immunity to protect, to protect the population mm -hmm. that way. Now our strategies are all about whether intentionally or not. And I don't mm -hmm. know that everybody's thinking about them this way, but now our strategies all seem to be focused on bringing it our below one. Yeah, yeah. As close to zero as possible. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, in the history of mankind, nobody has ever eradicated a disease for social distancing. You right. Know, we've only eradicated two diseases and those were for, because we had vaccines. So vaccines. we have to accept that's the, the end fact game here. we have to, well, that's an end game. Yeah. But we have to accept yeah. that it's going to come back after right. doing that. And we have to be ready to respond in some way to what, whether by being more targeted or, being better about the mild interventions, we have to have some response coming back. Yeah, so that that's the scary thing, right? Because yeah, you just keep hearing about, you know, you come out of these measures and then all of a sudden the peak comes back. You know, that's a really scary idea. So, but you you believe, I mean, you, you gave us one strategy, but um, I guess my question is if we squash it down low enough, and then we come out of it and we do kind of precautionary social distancing, but we're all going back to work. Kids are going back to school, et cetera. Um, well, I guess it'll be summer by then. So <laughs> maybe they won't be. Um, but are, are we saying that we may be able to escape that scenario of another peak? Or do you think that we still need to do a lot of, um, you know, we need a strategy here. Uh, we can't just go back to normal. Even if we squash the numbers down really low, this peak could happen again. 
I think we can only go back to normal if we can do something targeted. And I want to kick it over to Michael to see if yeah, he thinks we can do something Michael's... targeted. Yes. Yeah, I, I think what, what it's going to need is, is uh, we'll have to have targeted interventions. And th those are going to be surrounding things like knowing, knowing your status in the same yeah. way. You know, there, there is a corollary here. It, it's not mm. really a good one epidemiologically, but knowing your status in HIV is super yeah. important because it causes you to change your behavior right. in a way to, to mitigate your transmission, the, the number of people you might transmit to. And it's the mm -hmm. same idea, very different disease, but uh, same idea here. If you know that you're immune, then you can, you can uh, make certain decisions based on that. And if, and if you know that you've never been infected, then you have to make certain different decisions, in particular surrounding if you're younger, you have to make very careful decisions when you go and visit grandma and grandpa at a nursing home, for example. Whereas if you know that if by that point we have what we call correlates of protection for immunity, we know what antibody level uh, correlates with, with being generally protected from getting this virus and transmitted to others, then we can work with those types of, that type of information. And so that's the phase that we're getting into now is uh, we've been focused so much on PCR-based testing for the virus itself, and we still have to be there. We still have to be doing that. But what we're seeing now is we're getting into this phase also of trying to understand uh, what are the correlates of protection? Can we develop an antibody test that's reliable, number one? If we can develop an antibody test that's reliable, can we make it sufficiently quantitative to know that it, that it, that it can correlate, that it can tell you your immune status? Right. And if all of that comes out, can we get it rolled out widely enough to enough number of people to really be able to monitor people's individual level status and also know where we are in this epidemic and the population level of immunity, which yeah. is going to be crucial for further modeling of this. Right. Yeah. I mean, the, the back to that last point, to that last point, right. We're a lot of what we're saying here, um, both Michael and I are predicated on the fact that this has a pretty high uh, fatality rate and a pretty high hospitalization rate. Mm -hmm. And that at this point, the population has not accumulated a ton of immunity right. naturally. I have some, and most of my colleagues, I think most of our colleagues are there. They're, they're, they might be talking about, you know, uh, like a factor of two or three on that but they're not fact talking about a factor of 10 or 100. Some people are. There's one or two people out there who are. I hope they're right. I don't think they are, but I hope they're right. Because if we have accumulated a lot of immunity that we just didn't real from a lot of silent transmission, we just didn't mm -hmm. realize was going on, mm -hmm. that completely changes the game. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're not going to know that until we have the reliable serological test that's correlates immunity. Right. So I think that is of the... You know, like, so I, I see it as two prongs, right? One is this know your status prong, and the other is um, sort of the classic containment prong, let's call it, like where you, you identify cases quickly, you go around them, you do what you can to localize that identification so you're not making everybody in the population, you know, do an activity that really needs to only apply to a very few people who are, mm -hmm. you know, infected or directly exposed. Right. And we still think that that activity, so if everyone could know their status right now and people were asymptomatic, but they tested positive, we still think that a, a two week quarantine is the, the right call. 
Yeah, we with the knowledge that we have at this point, mm-hmm. I think if if you are ace, I mean, the, the problem with being asymptomatically infected is we still don't know. We don't know anything actually about right. what it means in terms of future immunity. Uh-huh. We hope that it means that somebody will come out of an asymptomatic infection uh, and and have immunity, mm-hmm. but we actually but have we no know. idea at this point. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I was going to ask you about that. That's not comforting to know. We have no idea. about. That. <laughs> uh, well, it's a novel. Yeah. It's a new, this is, this is the problem with the, with the wholly new virus. We're just mm-hmm. trying to make all the tools now, uh, right. it, you know, and it's just, it compounds everything. We're trying to do all of this technology development and, and roll out of testing and all this at the same time mm-hmm. that, that, that for other reasons, the healthcare industry and the clinical laboratories are already completely stretched because the healthcare system is being overburdened. Right. And so it's, you know, it's this compounding factor of, of an epidemic and a pandemic like this where just everything becomes harder and you have to work more efficiently and faster than you ever would otherwise mm-hmm. in more difficult settings. And you know, it's just an extra- extraordinary um, right. can, task. Can yes. I say something positive though? Yes, that, please. Like, <laughs> you know, that, I mean, we're fighting this war, it's hard you know, and, and we're having to come up with tools and we don't understand the situation where major, you know, there's major fog of war going on. We're fighting this war against this virus, but you know, this is the first time in human history where something at this scale has happened at this speed and we've been able to fight, Mm -hmm. you know, we can look at the coronaviruses that are in the population. We can look at the flu. We can look at every virus in that population at some point in history that virus jumped to the population and did something like this and we didn't know it was happening probably or we just knew a lot of people were dying no idea why we are for the first time in human history able to fight and it's frustrating because you know i um you know because usually when we're able we're used to being able to win that battle all the time but i think the mere fact that we're able to fight it you know i mean we're we're I think the time now is like analogous in some ways to the early days of the HIV epidemic, except it's just more global and moving faster right. and less localized in particular communities. It's like, we know what's happening, which is amazing accomplishment in and of itself. And I think we have even more tools now than they had then, but, you know, but it, there's tools are still inadequate and we're kind of unused to our tools being inadequate in this level. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, Thank you for a little bit of optimism there. <laughs> um, I do want to say, you know, before we move on to another topic that, you know, eight weeks seems pretty daunting, you know, <laughs> for all of us that are working from home, you know, uh, missing our offices, you know, those of us with kids at home, uh, not at school, it's a daunting task. But, you know, if that's what needs to be done, I'm hoping we as a society can, can get it done. But I wanted to ask about that. I mean, as you said, if you drive around Boston, if you drive around Chicago, I think, you know, I think you do see that people are social distancing and, and following these orders, but not everyone is, right? There, there's clearly, I mean, we know about the spring breakers in Florida. Of course, a lot of them have apologized at this point, but there's obviously going to be um, many people who are violating a lot of these orders. So I think a lot of, of people may be wondering how universal does it have to be to be effective, you know, or can it be that <laughs> some, you know, five, 10% of people are going to be out there completely violating this, doing their normal behavior. 
um, will we still see the hammer work if those individuals are doing that? I, I think in, in general, we are, you know, the, the whole, the whole goal is to, is to do this as a, as a whole population. And I, and I think that, you know, if there's a few people who are, who it's, it's kind of, it's kind of the same thing as vaccines. Uh, if That's exactly a few what I was going to say. Who, yeah, you know, we can, we have some tolerance mm -hmm. to it, but you know, if everyone says, oh, they, you know, Michael and Justin said that a few people can go out and, and I'm one of those few people. If everyone does that, then, then things break down. So, right. it, you know, everyone yeah, If you're should... one of those people, don't listen to this. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, yeah. go ahead. Sorry. No. So, yeah. so I think that, that there is a, uh, that, that it's okay. I don't think we have to assume that, you know, one person going out, if you see your neighbor outside, you know, one day, like, let them be outside, you know, people have to keep living. <laughs> Um, but yes. we also just need to work together as a society to make sure that, you know, we're not all doing that at the same time. And, and that's maybe some way that, you know, it would take really remarkable um, uh, organization, I think. But, you know, mm -hmm. you, could, you see things like this happening actually at Wegmans and things where they're having people queue up six feet from each other yep. like this and yep. a number of people can go in at once. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so I, it'll it'll be interesting. I don't think any of us on this call are behavioral scientists, but it's going to be right. really interesting to see how people respond. You know, it's only been what like a week and a half, two weeks. <laughs> yeah. It seems right. like a year, but yeah. Yeah, and I mean, we we say it's hard and it's hard to keep up, but uh, you know, uh, in West Africa, in the West African Ebola epidemic, they contain that through social distancing, mm -hmm. and they, uh, you know, they change the way people were living and interacting for a lot longer than, you know, we're asking people to here. I mean, given it's a lot easier when the disease is very dramatic and so deadly and everyone mm -hmm. is at risk. Right. I mean, and that's one of the things I think people need to realize that even if they're not directly at risk, they're at risk because yeah. if those hospitals are filled up with people mm -hmm. like with COVID-19 patients and you have a disease or you know an event a heart attack or something that in the modern times might not be such a big deal if the host if you just can rush to the emergency room and get in and they can't take you or right. they can't get you a ventilator or whatever other supportive care you need then you're gonna suffer so I, I we're think all that's a really yeah we all all are at risk even if we're not at high risk from the disease itself Thank you for saying that. That's an incredibly important point. You know, I work at, at Rush and our hospital is completely taxed right now. And those of us non-essentials like me who, you know, don't see patients, we're not allowed to come back to the campus. But um, yeah, I mean, exactly. That's what I'm hearing. If you're, if you're sick from something else, if you break a leg, you know, it's not going to be the same experience as uh, before, you know, the COVID pandemic. So we are all at risk here and we really do need to heed these warnings. Um, so, uh, you know, where, so we've talked a lot about the hammer that we're dropping here and that we, we may be, be changing things. We're going to have to wait a couple weeks probably to see where things go, but you know, you guys are epidemiologists, you can predict things. So do you think things will get as bad in some of our major cities as they are in Italy currently? I mean, I know New York is already facing a lot of, uh, problems with hospitals and ICUs, but are we going to get to the point where we're triaging and deciding who gets a ventilator and who doesn't? I think, I think we're seeing the beginnings of that happen in New York. Um, we can hope that it won't happen in a lot of other cities in New York. You know, New York had everything going 
uh, going against it in this. You know, it's an extraordinarily dense population. Right. It's a it's a population that relies heavily on on public transit and heavily on uh, people walking uh, and and passing each other and being in very close contact on the street, at work, everything. And um, and so it led it led to a, a pretty rapid rise in cases there. And and I think. Uh, and the, just the sheer size and, and, and magnitude of the city also means that it's a d pretty difficult city to also enact these types of really strict quarantine measures overnight. It's very, very difficult to do. And, and so I think we are going to see, we're seeing it be strained and it, it's being pulled at the seams already. And I don't think that there's many avenues that I can come up with or, or paths that I can work out in my head to think that that's not going to just get worse in the next two weeks. Um, but they did make pretty drastic measures, and I do have uh, uh, hope anyway that that some of the some of the measures that took place pretty quickly in New York are going to help two weeks from now to to limit that. But I uh, I think that there's a, a real concern in particular in New York, but some other cities are starting to see it as well yeah. that we will be running out of ventilators. We will have people. Uh, uh, on 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 beds uh, in the hallway when they should be uh, mm -hmm. in a in a more critical care type of uh, of room, for example. Yeah. Right. I mean, every I mean, the country is a big country. You know, right. we're well over three hundred million people. There's a lot of cities. Uh, you know, and they and the local epidemiology can have both structural things, like Michael mentioned for New York. I also suspect there were a lot more than one introduction into New York. Right. Mm -hmm. They probably had a lot of big seating events because they're so connected. Mm -hmm. And uh, then, you know, there will be other cities probably where uh, maybe only small cities where there's like a big introduction events or some, something happens to move spread along quickly and they end up getting overtaxed. So if I, you know, so I think it's not going to be only New York. Hopefully, I'm pretty confident I'm pretty confident. How confident am I? I'm somewhat confident it won't be everywhere. And that, yeah. because I think I have been impressed by how much people have reacted, how quickly people have reacted as much as we squandered time really early on. Mm -hmm. Once it became, once it became obvious that social distancing was necessary. Uh, I think people jumped on that bandwagon uh, pretty quickly. And I've been actually quite, uh, quite impressed. So I, th I have hope that it was enough in a lot of places. I hope you're right, too. So it sounds like you're saying that, uh, you know, this is not going to be a countrywide phenomenon. It's going to be local. You know, there are definitely going to be some. Well, I meant I meant the taxing of the, the of the hospitals to the extent of what we're seeing I'm in hopeful. New York. So so OK. Well, the, but, the other uh, bit uh, uh, the, I would say that um, I think it is very, it's going to be very um, geographically sort of uh, uh, varied in that mm -hmm. um, we might see small towns that have um, very few hospitals available. Right. And they might, you know, those areas that where people really come from all over and funnel into a few hospitals might be stretched. But at the same time, a lot of rural America might actually sure. be in a better case than, than most cities. They have, you know, they might have pretty, pretty, um, 
uh, open hospitals in terms of hospital beds, you know, relative mm -hmm. to the average New York City, Boston, Baltimore type of hospital. Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it really does depend on sort of what, what is the, the open capacity usually, because it's not so much how much, how many spaces are in these hospitals in general, like a, a, uh, in an empty building. The, the real question is, what's the free capacity of these hospitals under normal equilibria? And I think that that's what we have to focus on. Like you, you might have the biggest hospital in the world, uh, but if it has two beds open, then it has, then it's one of the worst off for this type of epidemic. Cause it also means that it's probably in a place that will get a ton of people. Right. So I so think the, we so have the, to look at that. You know. Yeah. So the health of the population you're serving, I think has a big impact both in their infect and part of the disease or, you know, how, how this disease affects them, but you know, their stress in the hospital. But I also, yeah. you know, thinking about this question, you're asking, like, I do think, you know, Mike, Michael was talking about our epidemiological superpower earlier, mm. <laughs> and, and we are at a point where that is uh, sort of been knocked on its head a little bit, because we just had this really massive, crazy thing happen over the past couple of weeks. We had almost every jurisdiction in the U.S. do something. And that something varied between almost nothing to like shut everything down all at different times. People have responded to this by, you know, both decreasing a lot of, you know, typical movement, but there's also been structured movement of like people leaving New York, you know, for instance, because of New York's uh, overtaxed medical system, I know that people are leaving New York to go get sort of routine, more routine types of things. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, uh, so because of that, like all, there's this all sort of scrambling of business as usual. And it will be, uh, I think people will be studying for the next couple decades, trying to figure out exactly what happened during this period right now and what impact it actually had on the epidemic. This is going to be, yeah, countless people's PhD theses and perhaps entire careers. Yeah, I can only imagine. Yeah, and and even beyond, you know, talking about modeling, uh, we've been I've been working with some economists lately to think about the economic consequences, yeah. and in in very similar ways, you know, the, these types of massive, massive social changes have been maybe theorized a little bit, but they break these are the this is the type of action that breaks models, you know. Mm -hmm. Especially the when black you're swan. Yeah. 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 And, and also it's like, it's not just this COVID disease, right? Like what is this doing to IDU communities? Right. To what communities? Sorry. Uh, infectious drug users. Right. Okay. Like, gotcha. you know, like, so what is this going to do to the hepatitis epidemic or HIV mm -hmm. epidemic? Like I really, exactly. I don't think we have any good idea. It, mm -hmm. I can see it making it worse. I can see it making it better. Like it's really, so I think there's a lot of interesting uh, meat to dig into there for thinking about like, uh, you know, from epidemiology in the broader sense, you know, mm -hmm. this may be a time that we actually learn a lot from about, you know, hopefully there'll be a lot of silver linings in this over the long term, and that we learn a lot about how uh, to control or how social processes and disease interact in ways that help us intervene in better way mm -hmm. you know, better gotcha 
I hope you're right. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, okay. I'm going to ask you, Michael, this is your, your, your area of expertise. Where are we at with testing right now? And where do we need to be? So I would say we're, we're still, we are, we, we are still very, very minimal, minimally testing the population. I would say there's still a, a remarkable lack of testing for a country our size. Right. Um, and we've seen the most bizarre things get in the way of testing recently. You know, the biggest thing that is, uh, that is preventing testing uh, in at least in areas where testing is widely available now uh, is these 10 cent swabs is these mm -hmm. plastic pieces, uh, these plastic sticks with a little piece of nylon um, Velcro at the end, essentially that you stick into your nose. And, and that's actually what's inhibiting testing right now. So we're having to come up with creative ways to get around that. Yeah. Um, and then even just the little, the tube of solution that you mm -hmm. dunk the swab into when you're done has been sold out. And a lot of this, I mean, this really gets, it's a int really interesting story. Uh, it, a lot of what happened was the swab and these little matrix tubes, these tubes of, um, of solution that the swab goes into the, the the biggest manufacturer of them is is Copan. What's that? Yeah, yeah. I said, in, let me guess where it's based. Well, it's in Lombardy, Italy. And, oh, uh, <laughs> you okay, that was wrong, Brian. Right. 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 That was a surprise. <laughs> twist, plot twist. Still yeah, the so same result, in, though. Exactly. Know. It's in Italy, yeah. and it, and you know they they're having their own problems, and so not only it's kind of like in the hospitals, but not only is this like the time when their manufacturing is needed the absolute most is the most demand being placed on them, but you know, their workers are homesick and, and some are dying. And so it's been interesting to see that, but what we have seen is the testing itself has continued to ramp up. Mm -hmm. uh, it's happening somewhat in fits and spurts. Um, we have, but we now have the big companies like LabCorp and Quest and ViraCore are, are, uh, have introduced testing for this, and they can do thousands and thousands of tests a day mm -hmm. across the country. Um, uh, and then you have uh, the big manufacturers like Roche and Hologic and Cepheid, Gene Expert and Biofire. These are some of the main companies that that microbiology labs are used to using. That sort of all these labs that wanted to get testing going uh, a month and a half ago couldn't because they're they're essentially beholden to these manufacturers because that's sort mm -hmm. of all they. The, the microbiology labs of today know how to use kits. And until these manufacturers produce these sort of plastic kits, mm -hmm. it was really, really hard for any microbiology lab to figure out how to like do the, the more manual CDC type of test. Hmm. And, then, and then you have, um, you do have a lot of lab developed tests that are kind of taking that CDC test and a manual thing of putting it on robots and that's happening. And that's, um, I've been really involved with that over the last, uh, month and a half or so uh two months really just getting testing going in our hospital but then recognizing mm -hmm. that there was just no way that the hospitals themselves could service the the needs of of the city i started working with the broad institute here which is they're they're used to doing thousands of genetic sequencing um mm -hmm. uh results a day and so so we we collaborated to say well let's take all of their expertise in robotics and and being super efficient and, and let's just do this manual PCR by robotics. Mm -hmm. And so now we can actually do thousands and thousands of tests a day um, in this one facility with a pretty small number of people because we just have robots doing everything for us. Wow. Um, and get so results much quicker, right? 
Yeah, so we're actually getting results really quick because what's happening is you see the, some of the big companies like LabCorp and Quest, they're servicing the whole country. Right. And, and, um, and so that's great that they can offer the service to, to the whole country. But what we're seeing now is like four, five, six, seven day delays in getting right. results back, which right. for, a, for an acute viral infection, seven days is sometimes the entire infectious yeah. process. Right. It's ridiculous. Yeah. And, so um, just, yeah, just as a personal example. So last week uh, I had respiratory symptoms and uh, stuff. So I was worried I might have COVID-19 and I also, you know, I have involvement in like, you know, our hospitals, incident control center and stuff like that. So I was particularly, you know, aggressive about going and getting tested and had my uh, negative test back in less than 24 hours. I was really surprised. Um, I think so it's things are getting faster. Yeah. It's because of what our hospital did, uh, has been doing internally. I don't know if I was prioritized or not, but like right. it certainly was an impressively fast turnaround from what I think had I gone even a couple days before it would have mm. been. Yeah, yeah, or or if you were to go to sort of an outpatient clinic that has to send to one, you know, the, that's where being being able to go to a world-class hospital, which of course Justin went to maybe the world-class hospital. Um, uh, you know that- They'd it, like to think so. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> um, hey you know, man, they, don't talk they, mad about um, your employer on this podcast. They, that, that is where, you know, we always, people get, the, get benefits of going to the, the very top places and, and having in-house tests. We have uh, now we have right this this this, act, this this effort that we put together at the Broad to do thousands of tests. We can now service sort of the greater Massachusetts and New England area. But even within our hospital, we have a Hologic Panther, which can get a result back to somebody within a couple of hours. And now we have a Cepheid instrument too that can get a result technically back in less than an hour. Yeah. So you know the the patients who are who need it the most who come into a hospital like a Harvard Hospital or Hopkins. They're going to get a result back pretty quick if they need it, but unfortunately, that is a vast minority of yeah. this of this country. And the real the real problem is the 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 broad swath of the country, the other three hundred and ten million people who don't have ready access to top notch hospitals, who mm. you know are are sitting in the queue, and that's where infections might either either people are going to be waiting four, five, six, seven days to get a result back. And what that's going to do is in these hospitals that are already underserviced, already have fewer materials, people are going to either have to be presuming that they're positive until they can get ruled out waiting for that mm -hmm. test, which means every doctor or nurse that walks into that room has to use a mask and, and a gown. And these things are becoming pretty much out of stock globally. So now mm -hmm. we're seeing that nurses and doctors can't really protect themselves as much as they would like to when they go into these rooms. So the faster the faster we can get a result back to a patient, it's better for the public health system overall and for the medical system because we are truly running out of this material. Yeah, yeah, and, and I'd like to emphasize too that like the testing, right, it's not magic and we have to be careful. Like for instance, you know, just because you have a negative test it, early on in your infection doesn't mean you won't have a positive test later. It, That's it a takes a while. You get, you get infected the next day, right? Well, not you could, oh. or you could be infected already. Oh, you could be infected and it just hasn't shown up. It hasn't, up. Oh, right. Wow. You, you might only have a few virons like, you know, replicating and they're not going to be picked That's up, scary. right? You have yeah. to be shedding a certain amount of virus for the test 
to detect you. And, mm. and there's probably, because there's so many people figuring this out as we're going along yeah. and so many protocols, a pretty big spectrum in how well the different tests are working right now. But yeah. I think, I think we need to get to a point that we don't, we cannot, we, we aren't just testing people once because mm -hmm. you're probably not infectious at that moment you had that negative test, right? It would, mm -hmm. cause it's not detecting the virus, but doesn't mean you are going to become infectious later Oof. and you need to be a, we need to be able to be able to test people multiple times and have, you know, think a little bit about the course of infection and the epidemiological risk factors people have and prioritize how we treat them because of that, you know, so, so at the same time, while, while testing is like, if in terms of biomedical tools, it's sort of the biomedical tool we have to make this better right now. It, it needs to be paired with our understanding of how the virus progresses in people and individual uh, epidemiological situations uh, in order to, um, in order to uh, appropriately treat patients gotcha. and protect yeah. healthcare workers. Yeah, and I will say just this week, we had uh, uh, one of the hospitals, we had a, a patient who was negative on, on, on one day. And then the next day, floridly positive, you know, and, and that was uh, totally surprising to everyone, you know, and it's, and these are the, we're actually still just understanding. So along with rolling out these tests, we're using this test in a way that's different than almost any other time that we really use respiratory tests. To a certain extent, we do, we do use flu tests for, for surveillance, um, but the scrutiny that's being placed on every test that gets run right now, we actually don't know, like, what are the characteristics of this test? What does a low viral load mean in, in a test like this? If we have, like, uh, if we have a patient who, who has a, a, a viral load of 10 copies, you know, when, when a really symptomatic patient has a viral load of like a billion, um, mm. we actually don't know how to interpret 10. Is that, is that person infectious? Is that person about to become infectious? Or was that person infectious two weeks ago? It's really, really interesting what, that, how little yeah. we know about how to use these tests. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, interesting. We're going to learn a lot about this. So I want to be respectful of your guys' time because I know it's close to midnight where you are and you guys have been working like 15 to 16 hour days and must be exhausted. Um, so I'm just going to ask you one more question. Um, one more area of questions. I, I want to know where we're at with masks. So, you know, there's been a lot of talk in the, in the media, uh, you know, and amongst people about masks, you know, we clearly have a shortage for our healthcare professionals and obviously, uh, you know, whatever professionally uh, available masks are out there should go to those health professionals. Um, but, you know, are we addressing this shortage? First of all, like where are we ramping up mask production? What kind of masks actually work um, to stave off this um, uh, the spread of this infection? Actually, let's just start with those two questions. So, I mean, one thing we're doing to address the, sort the shortage is going old school a little bit. Uh, mm -hmm. People are making reusable masks out of, right. uh, you know, cloth and stuff like that. Uh, yep. Actually, a friend of our family's is making masks for my wife who works in the hospital. And oh, so what's your take bunch. on? So are they effective? I mean, they're going to be effective to some, against some things. They're mm -hmm. not going to be as effective as a disposable mask or, and certainly not as an N95 mask against this mm -hmm. virus. But I think part of it is the idea is this might be helpful in some of the places that we are 
you know, diverting those masks from mm -hmm. for this disease, like, you know, where, you know, you know, maybe where somebody were worried about a bacterial infection or something like that. Mm -hmm. The other thing I'd say is for this disease, you know, we always think about masks or a lot of the conversation about masks focuses on the intake. Mm -hmm. I think there's a lot of, uh, a lot more uncertainty about what works and what doesn't work on the mm -hmm. intake on you getting and protecting yourself from getting infected. Mm -hmm. But we're pretty sure that wearing the mask does a good amount of good, pretty large amount of good on the outward, right? right. Stopping you from protecting other people, infecting other people and, mm -hmm. you know, stopping that transmission. And because mm -hmm. as we've talked about, we all benefit from stopping the transmission. I think, it certainly behooves everybody to, you know, think about wearing a mask if they have even a cloth mask if they have one if they're mm -hmm. ill. Um, and even if they're not, right? Because as we said, you've got this whole asymptomatic period um, where you could be yeah. shedding the the virus, right? Yeah, in high contact situations or like if you're doing healthcare and stuff. Certainly, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've heard rumors at least that the CDC is going to be making a. Uh, um, is going to recommend that we all wear masks out in public, which would be a just tremendous pivot in, um, you know, what the recommendations about mask wearing are. Um, and I think a lot, from what I understand, a lot of that is based on the idea that if so much of the population could be spreading it, and we don't know, um, that if we destigmatize the mask wearing and everyone wears masks, we could really cut down on some of the spread. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah, I think I, I think it does. If 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 everyone is wearing a mask, and I think you will inevitably help cut down on spread a little bit, uh, particularly by people who don't realize that they might be spreading it. Um, mm -hmm. I I think you're yeah. I'm going to your to your one of your first questions on this topic was sort of what are the what what else is happening? So there's people making them. There's even people 3D printing masks now, trying wow. to pre, 3D print the the little plastic uh, pieces to structure it. And, and find the right fabric and filters mm -hmm. to, to go over it. So we're seeing people become very creative. We're seeing people mm -hmm. try to 3D print these swabs too. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, I, I do think, you know, it's pretty interesting to see how innovative people are becoming. And, and like Justin said, it's, it's also remnant, it's pretty old school too. You're seeing mm -hmm. go, people going back to figuring out how to do things themselves, which generally our culture in America and the United States isn't so used to that kind of level of needing to be sufficient without manufactured right. products. Right, which I think has led to a lot of the skepticism about it. And, and, and part of that is fueled by officials saying, you know, the masks are not going to do anything for you. You know, if you're, if you're not sick, there's no point in it. Um, you know, but I, I, I don't know, at least to me, it makes sense that if, you, if this is spread by particles and droplets, that if you put a physical barrier between your, your mouth and um, other people, that you're going to at least partially reduce some of the transmission. So, yeah, um, I mean, I think a lot of that messaging was around two things. One uh, was a sort of global public health messaging is that this is a this is a scarce resource. The, the mm -hmm. manufactured masks that have been validated and stuff like that, that's a scarce resource. And we've yep. been trying to stop people from wasting that resource. Right. Um, but then there, not, the other part is I think there's a concern about false confidence in the intake side, right? Yeah. I think we worry that people right. might be overconfident that if they wear a mask, they're protected and they don't have to think about any of these other measures. Right. Um, right. 
So, yeah. right. I and think we may you be guys are hearing the uh, end. You may be starting to hear the end of the call alarm <laughs> or the end of the podcast alarm of my daughter Your waking up. Screaming. Yes. Well, my daughter's I think waking that up that for her be, midnight. It's uh, <laughs> probably a good place to end it then. Okay. So, um, let's leave that right here. Okay. So, um, I'd like to thank doctors Justin Lessler and Michael Mina for joining us on this third coronavirus episode. Um, we'd also like to thank Sue Bevan for producing the show. And before we go, if you are an epidemiologist, I strongly recommend you consider becoming a member of the Society for Epidemiologic Research. Membership gets you a discounted fee for the annual meeting, which due to our current COVID-19 situation has been moved from June to December this year in Boston. It also gets you access to the SER library, which gives you access to some great learning materials, seminars, and activities. Find out more at epiresearch.org. We really appreciate you all listening, and we'll be back with another episode soon. Thank you.